Everybody wants to change the world, right? I hear that statement all the time. Young people certainly, but even older folks will say to me, Pastor Wayne, I just want to make the world a better place. It's a powerful idea. It even was the, uh, the idea behind one of the most successful political campaign slogans in U.S. history, hope and change. Who could disagree? No one, because everybody wants to change the world. But there's a bad seed in that idea, and it's a seed that germinates in every human. Listen carefully. This side of the Garden of Eden, people think we want to change the world. That's what we think. But deep down, what we really demand is control. We say we want to change the world, but what we really desire is to rule the world. The television show Psych exposed this powerfully in a very subtle episode. This was so brilliant. Look what they did. They introduced a character named Declan Rand, and he was this, this visibly wonderful guy. Everything about Declan Rand was just incredible and great, and uh, he, he was a guy who was doing everything to better the world. He was using his money and his time and his talents to make the world a better place, okay? So you're introduced to this character on the TV show Psych. And then, this was really well done. Then Declan goes walking out to his backyard and he walks past his pool area and his personal entertainer is there. Now the camera pauses on his personal entertainer and the audience realizes that that's Kurt Smith. Um, if you don't know, Kurt Smith was one half of a group called Tears for Fears. They were wildly successful back in the 20th century, okay? So Declan ran a long time ago. You're old. <laughs> um, so Declan, sorry, I didn't mean to break that to you so harshly. Um, so Declan goes walking by, this supposedly fantastic guy goes walking by, and as he does, Kurt Smith starts playing Tears for Fears' biggest hit. He starts playing, everybody sing it with me if you know it. Everybody wants to rule the world. It was genius, just genius. It was fantastic. Isn't that insightful? The best people who seem to want to save the world, deep down they just want to rule it. It's part of the universal sinful human condition. In 2,500 years, no one's ever described the problem better than Isaiah. Look what he wrote, Isaiah 64, verse 6. In fact, uh, join me on the underlying part of Isaiah 64, 6. Here it is in a nutshell. All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. It's a really disgusting image in the Hebrew I don't want to go into, but it's gross. The painful reality that Isaiah described was on display last week when the World Economic Forum gathered in Davos, Switzerland. Now, let's assume, please, let's assume that our fellow human beings who are at Davos are very sincere in their desire to better the world. But do they really think they're going to change the world from there? Do they understand this built-in desire to try to control? Those questions led to this fantastic observation by Walter Russell Mead, probably my favorite scholar in the world right now, Walter Russell Mead. He wrote this last week. There's something inescapably ridiculous about a gathering this self-important. Certainly Marie Antoinette and her friends dressing up as shepherdesses to celebrate the simple life has nothing on the more than 100 billionaires descending often by private jet on an exclusive Swiss ski resort for four days of ostentatious hand-wringing about the problems of the poor and the dangers of climate change. Walter says, this year an earnest young aide at registration told me that to reduce the event's carbon footprint, no paper maps of the town were being distributed. One could almost feel the waves of relief from the nearby alpine glaciers at this sign of green progress. <laughs> Close quote. 
The point is that everybody wants to change the world, but our actions are almost as laughable as our results because by nature, even our righteous acts are polluted. We end up ruling poorly and changing nothing. Now, lest we devolve into hopeless cynicism, and the point is not cynicism, let me show you one person who actually did change the world. Open your Bible, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, in your Old Testament, chapter 9. Everybody wants to change the world. Did you know Daniel actually did? Here's how. Read verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. Okay, the context here. Uh, the Medo-Persians have amalgamated this empire. It's in the very early stages of that empire, and they have conquered what we call the Babylonian Empire. Um, not a phrase they would have used for it, but it was what it was. And, and uh, Daniel has spent all of his life, not just his adult life, since he was a child in Babylon, helping to uh, the Babylonian empires control things and, and run things. He's a very talented uh, bureaucrat, leader. And so the, the city that he's always lived in has just been conquered by a really brilliant night attack. We'll go into that some of the time. So, so the Medes and Persians have conquered, and they took this guy named Darius. We don't know who he is. He may have been Ugbaru, who's a, a general we do know, but whoever he was, he's put in charge of Babylon. They call it a kingdom. Um, if you're reading things outside the Bible, later the Persians will call these satrapies. Uh, we would call them states, uh, but there's a kingdom. So Darius is in charge of Babylon. That's the setup. All right. So in the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, that's Babylon, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. Daniel studied Scripture. That is the first step. He understood because he studied Scripture. It's the first step in truly affecting change. Study the Bible. By the way, it's a headline in your notes. Uh, you got a worship guide when you came in. Look on the left-hand side. Daniel studied Scripture. The key term here is what we translate understood. The Hebrew is a form of this word, bean, uh, Bean's a very important term. In Daniel's usage, it means understanding. But, but to truly grasp beam, we need to consider the context of this very widely used word. In Hebrew and in every other Semitic language, they all use beam. It's used to indicate noticing, observing, discerning, differentiating things. That's why, that's why bean led to other words like bina, which is the Hebrew word for insight, for understanding. It, it was this foundation of carefully observing that led to Daniel's use of this term throughout his book. Yes, bean in Daniel means understanding, but it is understanding born of study and discernment. Bean declares that one gains insight through observing and noticing and differentiating. 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, takes this idea and brings it out in our New Testament. I really think the old King James actually exposes the bean idea best. First uh, Timothy 2.15, Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing, say the last part with me, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly divide. That's bean. That's bean language. Real Bible study requires bean. You can summarize the work of, of gaining bean understanding in four terms, four terms, observation, interpretation, correlation, application. Observation, what does it say? What does it really say? Observe, look, we never do enough observation. 
Interpretation. Okay, what does that mean? In historical, scriptural, linguistic, literary, grammatical context, what does that mean? Correlation. How do I transfer that principle to our life and times without watering anything down or without trying to fit today into a different world? How do we correlate the Bible truth to us? Application. What needs to change in me as I live out this text? How does it apply to my life? That, my friends, is what being understood is talking about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. Daniel didn't just magically understand. He studied, he observed, and he rightly divided the text. Do we? Do, do we? My friend Danny Hayes, I think, nails many of us in this observation. Danny says this, when you move straight, this is from his book, his excellent book, Grasping God's Word. When you move straight from initial reading a passage to application of the passage, you will remain tied to your previous understanding or misunderstanding of that text. You will rarely see, this is so true, you ever experienced this? You'll rarely see anything new and exciting in the text. The Bible will become boring for you. You had that happen? The Bible just becomes boring for you? The Bible, however, it's the Word of God. It is not boring. But you have to exert considerable effort. Close quote. Daniel exerted considerable effort. Bead. And by his study, Daniel recognized that the end of Israel's captivity was, was coming. When Daniel wrote chapter 9, as I described, the Babylonian Empire, the city of Babylon, had just fallen to the Medes and, and Persians. Darius the Mede had been installed as the king, the satrap of, uh, of Babylon. By the way, later Cyrus the Great gave him the province of Syria as well. One of my old teachers puts Daniel's uh, study of the Scripture in historical context. This is really good. Dr. Pentecost wrote, Jeremiah had predicted that Israel's sojourn in Babylon was to last 70 years. You can find that in Jeremiah 25. Evidently moved by Darius's victory, Daniel searched the Scriptures to understand the events of which he was a vital part. He understood Darius's victory meant the termination of the 70-year captivity was near. Thus, these significant events became even more momentous for Daniel. Close quote. That's what studying Scripture does. It, it makes everything happening around us stand out in its true significance. Scripture shows us where we've been and where we're going. And it does even more. Look. Bible study changes us from the inside out. I want to show you a fascinating report. Uh, this was last year from the Center for Biblical Engagement. Get this. People who read or listen to the Bible at least four times a week, people who read or listen to the Bible at least four times a week, 228% more likely to share their faith with others, something God tells us to do. They are 231% more likely to disciple others. They are four times more likely than any other people who call themselves Christians to memorize Scripture. It changes us. Look, look at this. Read or listen to the Bible four times a week, you experience a 30% drop in feeling lonely. They experience a 32% drop in their anger issues, 40% drop in bitterness in their relationships. They are half as likely, more than half as likely to get drunk, which Scripture says is a sin. They are 60% less likely to feel spiritually stagnant, 61% less likely to view pornography, 68% less likely to have sex outside marriage. Those who really study the Bible regularly are 74% less likely to gamble. Now, I do want to give one warning. There are some causal issues. I looked at this research. There are some causal issues that crisscross. The research isn't perfect, but I do think Steve Arterburn's conclusion is accurate. Look what he says. Listening to or reading the Bible at least four times a week changes our character, relationships, behavior, and choices we make each day. 
close quote. Daniel studied the scripture and it changed him. We should do the same. Remember, our annual vision this year is no stone unturned. Right? Our, our commitment is to be shaped and molded as disciples of Christ, like rocks being smoothed in, in the friction of a mountain stream. And, and that requires being. That requires studying Scripture so that it changes us. It's evident in our annual theme verse. Our theme verse for the year, Colossians 3.16. Read it with me all together. Let's read it together. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. That's what Daniel did. And, and Daniel also sought the Lord. Look at verse 3. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, when I first studied it, this verse befuddled me. That likely would not have been my reaction to verse 2, to learning from Scripture. When I see prophecy and I, and I understand it, I, I tend to say, oh, okay, that's all set. I'll just pat myself on the back now that I understand that. It's so good, Right? Uh, if you ever go to prophecy conferences, which are wonderful and I recommend, you'll sometimes see this. There's a smug self-centeredness that is surely disgusting to God. But that's not Daniel's way. His response is to actively be a part of what God has promised to do. That's why he goes on, as we're going to see in a moment, to pray about all the things that God has revealed will occur. His description is really edifying. Look, look at the term we translate attention. The term we translate attention is pone. Pone literally means the face of a human being. Attention's a fine way to render this, but consider the picture Pone is painting. Daniel turns his face to God. When you turn your face to someone, they have your whole attention. While I was working on this text, uh, some friends of ours stopped by, and their little four-year-old girl, uh, she and I were sitting on the floor, and we were playing with Mr. Monk, our, our family dog. And, uh, and as we were playing with Mr. Monk, and we were sitting there, and he was snuggling up to us, she turned to ask me a question. And I am... I immediately thought of Daniel 9.3. I mean, she turned her face to me, and it would, I was her whole world at that moment. There was no, well, Mr. Monk, but other than Mr. Monk and me, there was nothing else in the whole world. That, that's beautiful. Daniel knows that Yahweh longs for us to turn our faces to him. Is that how we pray? Is that how you pray? I, I, at least much of the time, I don't think so. Daniel shows us a better way. He is focused on God. He is absorbed in God's revelation, which is why he adopts the sackcloth. Sackcloth and ashes are a sign of humility and mourning. You're going to see why it's evident in his full prayer. He turns to God because only God really changes the world. Daniel knows he needs rescue himself. He is not the Savior. That's why he fasts. Do you remember what fasting is? Fasting is used in the scripture for one reason and one reason only. It is a reminder of human inability. God doesn't get hungry. We do. That's why he fast. He fasts to remind himself that only God changes the world. Now, before we read Daniel's prayer, and it's one of the longest in scripture, let's make sure we understand what's going on, okay? Dan knows the world is changing. It's changing. I can feel it in the water. Sorry, wrong, wrong story. Um, anyway, Daniel knows the world is changing. He sees it outside his window. He sees it in his Bible, right? We know from the rest of the book that Daniel wants to be a part of this positive change. He takes that understanding, and he goes straight to God. He goes straight to God. That is different than what humans do naturally. You know, we confuse changing the world with ruling the world precisely because, here's why, we don't do the things that we should. 
And sometimes we don't want to do the things that we should, things like taking responsibility to study, to turn to God, to be humble with or without sackcloth and ashes. Psychiatrist Jordan Peterson addressed this really well on an Australian TV show. The TV show was all about changing the world. Look what he had to say. I'm not suggesting in the least and have never suggested that there's no domain for social action. I'm suggesting that people who don't have their own houses in order should be very careful before they go about reorganizing the world, which happens in many ways. If a young person believes that the uh, climate, the global warming um, problem on the climate is something that needs to be tackled quickly, and they can't wait until they grow up and become prime ministers to do it, do, do you think collective responsibility overrides individual responsibility in a huge issue like that? No. <laughs> okay. I do. I think that generally, I think that generally, I think that generally people, I think generally people have things that are more within their personal purview that are more difficult to deal with and that they're avoiding and that generally the way they avoid them is by adopting uh, pseudo-moralistic stances on large-scale social issues so that they look good to their friends and their neighbors. That's what I mean. Daniel is not concerned with fake morality. He is, he is not concerned with looking good to people. Obviously, he has put his life on the line many times. He seeks God's face. Now, let's read Daniel's prayer. Go to verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from Your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they've shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following His instructions that He set before us through His servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against Him. He's carried out His words that He spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we've not sought the, Lord, the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done. But we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day, we've sinned. We have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. 
Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel really did change the world without trying to control it. How, how did he do so? He studied Scripture. He sought the Lord. And as we headline on the right side of our notes, Daniel prayed. Daniel prayed. Prayer contains three big themes. First, he prayed with honesty about Yahweh. There is a massive difference between dialoguing with someone who's taken the time to really get to know you and, and, and just somebody who's trying to sell you on something, right? Um, in, in, in our office uh, at the church or all the difference, when we, get, when we get mail or email or a package or anything addressed to Michael Broderick, when I get mail addressed to Michael Broderick, they never send those packages, they never send those letters on to me, right? They, they, uh, they actually will read that and, and send it to whoever it really belongs to on staff. Why don't our staff send me things addressed to Michael Broderick? I mean, it's technically my first name. Why do they not do that? Because that means you know right then they don't know me. Well, now they do, actually. But anyway, they, uh, they, I ne- to people who know me, I never have gone by my first name, right? I am Wayne Brother. Go by my middle name. I don't even, until I, I was in kindergarten, I didn't know Michael was my name. I had no idea. Um, and, and, and so that's my, fa- my favorite are the ones who try to pretend that we're old pals, you know? And so they'll address it to, hey, Mike. And you're like, okay, that, that, throw that away. I, I know I don't know you because I've sure never gone by Mike. Sadly... That's how we often pray. We pretend to be close to God so that we can sell him on what we want. Not Daniel. Look at how brilliantly and accurately Daniel describes God. This is what naturally flows in his prayer. He is Lord. By the way, the reason that's all caps in most of your Bibles is it's a special word. It's Yahweh. It's the covenant name for God. It's it's the God who makes and keeps and will never break his covenant. That's who he is. He is God. He's my God. Isn't that cool? And then then later Daniel says, our God. Daniel exists. All of God's people exist in relation to him. They're in relation to him. He's great. He's awe-inspiring. He is gracious. He spoke. Is that incredible? In the pagan world in which Daniel's writing, the God speaks to people, engaging with? That's astonishing. He's righteous and just. He is compassionate. He is forgiving. Isn't that great? You know why that's so powerful? Because it's all accurate. God has revealed himself to undeserving humans, and his revelation shows that character. Daniel Daniel is showing us that he spent enough time with God and enough time in God's Scripture that he truly knows him. And, And look at the end of the prayer. Daniel ends the prayer focused on God's name. The Lord's glory is the ultimate reason for the prophet's request. When when we pray honestly about who God is, we've got a different focus. It, it, we, we realize that our request really matters only because of what it shows about God. It, he's the one working everything together. He's the most important thing. He's the one who changes the world. And the greatest change is for his greatness to be enjoyed and known. When our, when our daughter was in um, intensive care for months and months, a man named uh, Don Campbell came by one night. Don was the president of Dallas Seminary where I was a student. And I will never forget the prayer that Dr. Campbell prayed, simple prayer he prayed over Jessica's ICU bed. He said, Lord, please heal this child on earth for your name's sake. 
There's nothing more or less important than your glory, and we beg you to glorify yourself in this miracle. Heal this child. Amen. That is where you inevitably end up if you are focused on the true God. That's where you end up if you are honest about God. That is the effective prayer of the righteous. And by the way, both in Daniel's case and in the case of our daughter, that prayer was used by God to change the world. Daniel prays with knowledge of God. Secondly, Daniel prays with honesty about God's people, including himself. Look at all his statements. In that prayer, look at his statements, and he says, we... He's included in this. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled against you. By the way, each of those is repeated uh, at least two times, some of them three times. We've turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened. We've been disloyal. We have earned public shame. We've disobeyed. We have not changed our mind. We've not repented, even though we bear God's name. That is a disturbing list. And we look at that, and it just makes us sigh with relief and mutter, thank goodness we're not like that. (laughs) Thank God. Right? Ah, we are, aren't we? And I know know that this is a specific part of Moses' law which relates exclusively to Israel. I got that. It's true. Wonderfully, you and I are not under the law. We bear God's name in a different way than Judah did. And yet, Moses' law is still God's word, is it not? And it still exposes, you know what Moses' law does? It to this day exposes how very ugly we can be. Though we are saved by grace and we possess God's spirit, Christians can still operate by our sinful flesh. And we often do, don't we? Jew and Gentile, we who trust Jesus the Messiah are saved by God's sacrifice. All God's people said, amen. We deserve no relationship at all because God is holy and we are wicked. We are even worse than that list. Thank God he made a way for us on Jesus' cross by his, by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I can be made right with God and we can bear his name. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah. But even we who bear his name need to be honest in our prayers, admitting that most of this list applies far too much to far too, far too often to far too much of our daily lives. For our temporal relationship with God to flourish, you know what has to happen? We've got to be honest about humans as well as about God. And we do so with hopeful confidence. Look look at this. Even, Even though Daniel knows how cruddy Yahweh's people are, he still remembers they bear God's image. And he prays for them. Daniel could have been a surly victim. Think about this. The sins of other people had cost this man his entire life. His life has been sacrificed because of other people's stupidity. Daniel could have become bitter like so many people do. He could have become bitter nursing grievances real and imagined. But something fascinating happens when we pray honestly. Look, when we pray honestly, it it washes away the bitterness. It it allows us to be righteously angry, but then then leave the results in God's hands. And, And when we pray honestly, it makes us reflects on our own sins, which puts life in perspective. I'm absolutely horrified at how rarely this kind of honest prayer occurs, honesty about God, honesty about people. Here's how how I can show you the sad results of this. You can see the sad results in people who flee redeemed community. You ever had any, any Christian brethren that flee redeemed community? Here's a short list of what I've been told. Just a very short list of some things I've been told about from people. Here's why I'm fleeing redeemed community. I am too wounded. 
Christians are just hypocrites, which is true. Um, they hurt my feelings. I have seen how the sausage is made, right? Not everyone there shares my values. And this one, I know you're going to laugh at this one, but I have actually been told this one many times over the years. They're not attractive. I mean, <laughs> they're just not pretty inside or out. You very likely have heard or shared other excuses for withdrawal. Daniel could have made a very long list of reasons why he was so much better than his loser brethren. He could have declared only the bad about them in his prayer and praised himself for being better, and it would have been true. But instead, Daniel was honest. He saw himself clearly, and he included himself in the sins. He saw people clearly, and yet he prayed for their blessing. And that's what we've got to do. Instead of running away, pray. Pray for each other. When you flee community, th think this through. When you and I flee community, it's frankly idolatry. It is. Look, when I decide that I am too holy for my wretched brethren in Christ, I become a bad imitation of deity. I'm, I'm, I think I'm holy and separate, but I'm a God with no grace sacrifice, right? The real God is too holy for us, but He makes a way for us. When we think we're too holy for others, we're actually on very shaky ground. We can't bridge the divide, even if we wish, because the whole perspective is a lie. We're not deity. We're not holy. We're not able to rescue anyone. We can't save the world, much less rule it. God can. God does which is why we titled this series Beacons of Hope. Look, I know Daniel 7 through 12, what we're studying right now, it can seem really scary. It's heavy stuff. There are dark and frightening monsters in this. D Daniel 7 through 12 has a number of genuine looks at the real horror and evil of life. But through it all, Daniel keeps his focus on the light. He recognizes, he relates that God is holy. God rescues. God shines brightly forever. It's a little bit like this, um, this lighthouse that my dad made for, uh, for our son when our son was little. He, uh, he built this to be his nightlight. It's a pretty cool nightlight for a little kid, huh? Big lighthouse, and play area in the back. But the idea was that, that there, is a, there is a beacon of hope shining in the dark. Daniel never lost sight of that. And even though we're going to join Daniel in looking at the darkness of ourselves and the world, and Satan, we cannot lose sight of the fact that God's light shines through the darkness. All God's people said? The brightness, look at verse 19. The brightness almost moves me to tears sometimes. Um, Daniel is clear-eyed, right? Look at verse 19. He sees all the problems of God's people, and yet no matter what, he remembers these are God's name-bearers. Daniel does not ignore sin. But neither does he become some outraged font of self-pity and self-righteousness. In a word, he understands grace. And that's our final observation about this prayer. Daniel prays with a true understanding of grace. If you, if you really want to change the world, you have got to immerse yourself in grace. In, in English, verse 18 ends with the word compassion. That's the Hebrew word rachamim. Rachamim, fascinating term. You like that one? Okay, you want to say, all right, it's your best Hebrew word of the day. Rah, you got to roll the R too. You got to rahamin. Okay, and it's a little bit guttural. Rahamin. On the count of three. One, two, three. Rahamin. Very good. Oh my goodness, you're, you're Hebrew already. Um, apologize to the person in front of you since you just spat on them. Anyway, rahamin's a really interesting word. It means bowels. 
Okay, so Daniel's praying because of God's abundant bowels. You thought you had a large intestine. I'm kidding. It, it, that's not really what it literally means in this kind of usage. You see, way back in early Hebrew, they started using rahamim as a word for compassion. The, the idea is pretty cool. The idea was that you care so deeply for someone that you feel it in your gut, right? God cares so deeply for his idiotic people that it's like he has a stomachache when they are far from him. Now, look what happened. This is amazing. Look what happened to this term over time. Because rahamim was employed to detail God's compassion, it wasn't very long but before it became used as a synonym for grace. For example, David's famous prayer, Psalm 40, verse 11. Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth always guard me. That's grace. Look, look what David does. He pairs rachamim, compassion, with hesed, which is this amazing Hebrew word for, for love that cannot be broken, and with truth. So, so grace, grace is based on truth and covenant love expressed in compassion. 500 years later, Daniel uses the same word, and he follows suit. When Daniel uses rachamim in his prayer, he's calling on the grace of God, God's grace. That's what changes the world. Now, there are lots of misconceptions about grace, so let me, let me very briefly share you the, my best summary of the scriptural truth about how humans can actually interact with God's grace. First thing we need to know, interacting with God's grace requires understanding right and wrong. That, that's why David and Daniel, in their prayers, they note God's righteousness, His justice, His truth. It is not, please listen carefully, it is not grace to pretend that wrong is right. That's not great. There is a word for that. It's called lunacy, all right? It's crazy. Grace makes no sense outside of the idea that sin is sin, which leads to the second truth. Interacting with God's grace requires recognizing human inability. We are all sinful. Daniel's prayer made that clear. And we cannot on our own be okay before God. We must, we must accept his, his unearned favor that he bestows on us, Let's read again from verse 18. Verse 18 uh, shows this really well. You read the underlined parts. Daniel 9, 18. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Grace is activated in the life that knows there's a problem. The problem is we are not right and we cannot fix things ourselves. That's why grace comes through accepting the only solution that God offers, unmerited favor. And when grace permeates a person's soul and their prayers, it does something really wonderful. You know what grace does? Grace enables us to change the world without trying to rule the world. Because you see, the person who recognizes that he or she brings nothing to the table, that only God's grace is the answer, that person has a humility that makes them actually useful without trying to control everything. Earlier we read a little paragraph I read from Walter Russell Mead. It's intriguing to me that Mr. Mead, the article he wrote about Davos, he called it the crazy train. Now, I know that, that brings up a question you're asking in your favorite uh, British rock star imitation you use in your head. Why? Why is that interesting to you? Yeah, so it was called crazy train. Sherrod, right? Um, <laughs> what, uh, it, uh, thank you for asking. I'm intrigued because a guy named Ozzy Osbourne um, used the same image of a crazy train in, in a poem he wrote that exposes the graceless ideas that dominate human thinking. I know you think of this just as a goofy rock song, but I actually think this is one of the best poems ever written, written by Randy Rhodes, Bob Daisley, Ozzy Osbourne, and it shows, 
It shows the graceless ideas that permeate all aspects of human life. Here's what they say. I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. I've listened to preachers. I've listened to fools. By the way, if you look at the whole, the whole poem, uh, they use a Hebrew-type parallelism. So what's said on one part of a line relates to the other part. So preachers and fools are actually the same thing. Okay, in the, in the way they write this. Um, I've watched all the dropouts who make their own rules. See, those are the same thing. Dropouts make their own rules. One person conditioned to rule and control. The media sells it, and you live the role. Preachers can very easily tout legalism. We preachers become consumed with man-made rules. Um, the parallel here, I think, is really well written. Preachers can be graceless fools who actually just love to control. Just as bad are the dropouts. The dropouts ignore the truth of right and wrong, right? They, they try to make up their own realities. And, and Ozzy very brilliantly points out that doesn't work either. It's a crazy train. Then you've got this insightful comment on much of the media. Not all, but many media prefer um, a, a very broad governmental control in as few hands as possible. By the way, it's not hard to figure out why. You, you, Chris can tell you, you, it's a lot easier to go to one source for a story than to have to track it through a whole lot of places. It's, it's, it's easier when you've got one place to go to. But the rockers notice that also never leads to grace. It doesn't. It leads to only more rule, more control. Because without grace, everybody is on a crazy train wanting to rule the world. That's why every, every time that song comes on, and it's on all the time, it makes me think of grace. Because they are exposing the antithesis of grace, the control that comes from people. What God offers is so much better. Rahamim. Grace. Remember, remember, God knows more than the dropouts. Grace understands right and wrong. There are utopians in media and government who like to play make-believe. Grace doesn't do that. It accepts the reality of human inability. Grace, unlike so many preachers, recognizes that God offers unmerited favor as the only hope. Let's pray about that hope. Father, I, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters. I pray also for those who are not part of our family, our spiritual family, because they have never trusted on Jesus as Savior. I ask you to bring them to you. Folks, open your eyes. Come on. You know there's right and wrong. Good heavens. Toddler knows that. You know that. Surely you can recognize human inability. There's so much we can do, but we cannot be holy. But God is. So, friend, you're separated forever from Him, except He made a way. Jesus died on that cross. That's why we used it as the bridge in our picture earlier. He died on that cross purposefully giving his life so that everyone who trusted him could follow him in everlasting life. He rose from the grave, and he promises eternal life to those who believe on him. Rahamim, grace is offered to you. Take it. Receive it in Jesus. Trust Jesus. If you just received God's grace, if you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Thank you. Very good. Good for you. Amen. Lord, I pray for all these who are Christians, that we would position ourselves to truly change the world by studying your word, by turning our faces to you, and by 
by praying with integrity and insight so that we are covered with grace. In Jesus' name, amen.